this off. <laughs> um, let me pray us into this. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power in our lives. And just talking to people about how how we feel unrest in our souls right now facing the election in a couple days. All the news that seems so negative so often. The difficult conversations we have with loved ones and friends about these issues. I pray that you would pour cool water on all that. We pray for peace in our own souls, but we pray that that peace would bleed out into our communities and our cities and our country and out into the world. We pray for your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven, more so than anything else right now, Father. That you would be glorified, that you would be enthroned over this country and this, this the whole world, Every people group, every nation in this world, Father God, would, would know you and know the peace that you can bring. We don't put any trust in anything but you. We know that you are solid, that you are good, and that there is hope for our future because of you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, uh, if you haven't been with us, welcome everybody. It's good to see everybody. Uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been in Philippians. And today we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And I think that might be on around 802, page 802 or 803 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. Uh, or, or at home, if people are watching at home, they can follow along as well. But Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. A little lengthy, but I want to read it on the onset and just get it get it uh, into our brains. It says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. So he's writing to somebody that in the negative, right? You know, writing against a group of people, some sort of group. And then in verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. So he's comparing them, the Philippian church, the, the believers that he's writing to, to this other group, right? Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, right? Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Mm. Um. I want to know Christ, yes, the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. 
Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, press on towards, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Whew, that was a mouthful, wasn't it? <laughs> Um, Kim and I once took a cruise <laughs> and, uh, where I conquered one of my greatest fears, and that was that I sang in front of 300 people. And if anybody knows me, dancing and singing are not my thing. And um, we did a duet, uh, Kim and I, up front of You're the One That I Want by Olivia Newton-John and, yeah, and John Travolta in Greece. And I was trying to follow along. I was trying to sing the chorus, but the words came up so quickly that I, I kind of got tripped up, and I ended up singing one of Kim's lines, which was, I need a man that can satisfy me. And some 60-year-old balding man stood up in the crowd and said, I'll satisfy you, baby. And I pointed to my wife and said, uh, it's okay. I'm covered. <laughs> but that experience gave me a newfound appreciation for singers who can put all the, the, the elements together of song into a package that actually sounds good, not like me. And, uh, you know, it goes beyond having a good voice because there have been great singers like Tom Waits uh, who are very harsh and raspy in their singing. And I've always said that if Tom Waits isn't in heaven, if he doesn't get in, they're going to pipe his music in for, at the least, right? And there are more components uh, than you'd realize to good singing and good music and all that stuff. I mean, what Brian just did up here is not easy. That's years of stuff coming into that, right? It's a lot of practice. It's a lot of theory. It's a lot of... Uh, whatever. It's good equipment, everything else. Um, but for a good singer, for a good musician, all that becomes like muscle memory. They can do it easily, right? Um, what makes a good artist is much more than just talent. And, you know, in painting, I went to art school as a, as a visual artist, and so in painting, there are many components to a great work. There's form and structure and line and composition and color theory and application and uh, materials and mediums and chiaroscuro, which is the use of light and dark and drawing and everything else. And breaking patterns and doing something unique, you know, a great artist has the ability to make their work stand out, which, you know, oftentimes involves shock value because shock works, right? And uh, we see that all over America, shock works. Vincent Van Gogh um, was a great artist. Here's one of his paintings, The Postman. It's, I love this painting um, because it's just, a, it's just a postman. Joseph Rulin, if I pronounce his name correctly, but he's just a postal worker. But Van Gogh paints him in such a way to make him look like royalty, right? It's, like, it's almost like he's sitting on his throne, and, he's, and, and Van Gogh had this way of making the ordinary look extraordinary, right? And I think that's very gospel-like. You know, he was, he was able to put the intellectual kibbles and bits of painting, you know, into a work and make it beautiful, right? Make it work. Taking all the non-negotiables and mechanics of art and making them to bleed heart and soul out to us. And mediocre painters are, can't marry that mind and the heart. They can't, right? They, they get stuck in the mind part, the mechanics part, and the, the painting and the work, although well-crafted, kind of looks lifeless and dead. You know, 
we can draw a comparison as well between art and the spiritual life. We have all the nuts and bolts or the kibbles and bits of, of spiritual life too, right? In, in the Christian walk, we have theology and doctrine and salvation and grace and faith and leadership and baptism and body life and quiet times and prayer life and service and kingdom theology and missiology and all these different things that we're, we're growing and understanding and knowing and practicing. They are the nitty-gritties of the faith to be practiced in a relationship with Jesus in a vibrant sort of life-changing interaction, right? But when focus comes off of Jesus and we just focus on these things, we get bogged down with the details and elevate the mechanics of the spiritual life you know, to levels that are unhealthy. That's when we begin to live out of self-righteousness. That's when we begin to become legalistic in our Christianity. That's when we begin actually to serve a false gospel, not a true gospel. And it's really important. Paul was sort of the Leonardo da Vinci, you know, of, of a vibrant faith, right? He he continually applied the basics of the Christian life, you know, never losing sight of his freedom in Christ, his his grace in Christ and things like that. He could plug in all the details while keeping his focus on Jesus all the time. He was just a man of passion in that way. And the details, the mechanics, are not bad things. They're good, actually really good things. They're important practices. And, and one of those is to really understand what is Christ's righteousness over us. Meaning, and that kind of means in, in, a, in, in a nutshell that we don't have anything to prove to God. We, we, we don't even try to measure up because he's already done it for us. Right? That's what Christ's righteousness basically means in the vernacular, right? But to grasp that, we have to understand really what it is and how we get it. Let's break that down a little bit. Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Now, notice that word again, right? You know, he's writing these things that he has said before. Because they are vitally important to the Christian life. We only have 13 letters of Paul, but he must have written more. But in all of them, he is almost nauseatingly you know, repetitive in what he says to us. He's saying, I want to remind you again of what is central to the Christian life, to the spiritual life in Christ. Going over this again and again and again will guard you from wrong or false teaching or thoughts which aren't actually of Christ that will trip you up. And then he proceeds with this scathing. I mean, this is a scathing attack on a dangerous group of people uh, he's warning the Philippians about him. He says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those, e- those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. You know, imagine being a recipient, a recipient of this letter and how crass it may sound in its attack on this group of people, whoever they were. Let's understand the level of intensity that Paul uses in this short communique, right? He really, he, he's hammering these guys. And he's attacking what we would call as Judaizers, Jewish background believers who would, you know, follow Paul around and they would swoop in after he set up a church, you know, stepping in maybe with good intention to bring the Philippians or others, you know, into a clearer understanding of what it actually means to follow Jesus, right? Correctly, in their estimation. 
And what they were doing is that they were adding extra requirements to salvation. Undermining what Paul's already taught and preached to these people. And by doing so, they have dismantled the gospel and made it a falsehood. Tozer calls it, the, or called it, I don't think he's around anymore. Tozer called it the God and syndrome. I would actually change that to be the grace and system syndrome. It's great, the, the grace of Christ is not enough. The grace that we find in Jesus is not enough. You have to add, take the grace and then add something to it. You have to do certain things to be saved. They may have said, you know, you want to follow Jesus. Well, that's great, right? That's great. There's more to do, though. You've got to become Jewish first and you become, have to become circumcised. So speaking from this Jewish background, they didn't buy into the simple sort of gospel of grace. They believed that Christians had to adhere, at least in part, to this ceremonial law in order to be saved. And as Paul calls, he calls them dogs, men who do evil, mutilators of the flesh, even though they may have been well-intentioned religious people. We've got to understand that. They may have had really good intentions. And to call a Jew a dog is extremely offensive. I mean, I would be offended as I am, but even this, it was even more extremely offensive then. And revealing that to Paul, this is a really big deal, and they are undermining truth and faith. So referring to them as men who do evil, even though they may have thought that they were in the right, he attacks that which they put their identity in circumcision, right? This an ancient physical sign that they actually belong to God, that they are actually the people of God. But Paul claims it's only self-mutilation at this point. You know, at one point it may have had some value in, in the spiritual life, but in Christ it was not a requirement for salvation, and they were trying to place that on people. Salvation's by grace through faith alone, Right? Simply profess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and that's it. That's it. So profane and harsh words, since good intention or not, they were leading people astray. And leaders notice this, because we often don't give our leaders the, the ability to speak into some things. Sometimes a leader needs to be kind of hard. Right? Leaders like Paul are not concerned about personal feelings or offending sensibilities when it comes to the integrity of the gospel. Not at all. God's truth overrides our personal affinities. If you're leading people astray, you know, by false teaching, then you need to be confronted and refuted. Period. That's it. So for Paul, you got to understand that this is serious. But, you know, uh, couldn't he have just gone to these guys alone, written to them, you know, this, this one group, you know, directly and said, you know what, you guys just aren't getting it. Let me explain it to you. Let's have a discussion and I'll listen to all your concerns. Couldn't he have done that? Well, no. No, he couldn't. Because remember... Paul has addressed this. He's dealt with this over and over again. He's already dealt with this numerous times. And he has seen the damage that it has caused. And, and, and at certain times, making a stand on the gospel truth becomes absolutely paramount. And here's the, here's the, here's the kicker. Typically, those that are advocating for false teaching in the church cannot be reasoned with. They do not want to reason. 
and they must simply be refuted. That is a necessary part of the spiritual life. It is not a discussion for Paul, right? This is foundational to the gospel. It is a matter of life and death and the glory of Christ. Therefore, personal affinities don't really matter, right? Paul, like Jesus, seems to only really attack these religious legalists, right? Those putting extra requirements on the shoulders of sincere, you know, repentant people that just want to follow Jesus. They're perverting the gospel. They're making it a false gospel of self-effort. Paul reacts harshly because you can't create a beautiful painting using a Volkswagen as, as a paintbrush. That's a non-negotiable of art, right? You know, it just, it's just something that's true. You have to have the right materials, right? And likewise, you can't pollute the gospel by saying God's grace isn't enough for salvation. It's central, it's basic, it's unmovable in its importance to faith since our grasp of righteousness, Christ's righteousness in our life, dictates how we respond to God and how we respond to each other. You know, we face today... Uh, we face this sort of uh, thing today in a new progressive gospel being preached right now. I just picked up a book this week that I'm halfway through. It's called Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers, if I say her name correctly. But she has this experience where she's gone away from the Lord because she, she got sucked into this progressive gospel movement that isn't the gospel at all. And she's come back. It, but right now we see this happening in there that they're putting extra requirements on others you know, to consider to be saved, right? Jesus is moved off center. He's not actually at the center of that gospel. It, it, you know, certain issues and actions take his place of priority in that gospel. And if you don't agree, if you don't ascribe, if you don't become an activist for them in, in the way that they think you should in, in certain ways, you are suspect or worse, you're on the outside. And that is not the gospel at all. That's just division. We've been speaking a lot about unity over the last few months in church. And we come in under the umbrella of Christ and unity under Christ and nothing else. And that's really important, especially in this day and age. Paul says, it is we who are the circumcised, we who worship the Spirit, right? Glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, not them. And he's drawing lines as he should, because this is the battleground. This is where you do draw lines. That's not a popular sentiment these days to draw lines. But at times you need to, because it's important for the the salvation of peoples. You know, the flesh can be translated as simply human effort. And it's seen in two extremes. The fleshly side, which we would normally think of the fleshly side, the licentious person, the person that just says they they can do whatever they want, they can live however they want, they don't have anybody can control them, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And and then the self-righteous side, we also see the flesh in that, this law, this legalistic life, this doing everything right to earn my favor with God kind of side. And both are revealed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, in other words, this law, this legalistic side, nor uncircumcision, this licentious, free, just do whatever you want side, has any value. The only thing that counts is faith 
expressing itself in love. Now, faith, not, that's not an ethereal statement, just, just faith in everything. You know, love, baby. That's not what it's saying. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. Faith in all that Christ taught and upheld, right? Faith in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which I've been spouting off for the last, I don't know, six months. It's what, it's Christ, the solidity of the gospel and all that the scriptures teach. Right? It's not just some ethereal thing. We have solid ground uh, in what we believe as Christians, right? Because remember, the law is good. It's not a bad thing. It is our standard of life, this moral law of God. But when it becomes your measuring rod of getting right with God, you have lost the gospel. And that is when guilt and shame set into our lives and our walks, you know, since you and I can never live up to the standards of the law. Never. Every single day I fail that standard. It's easy for us to see the need for Christ in someone's life when they are just lost in their sin, that licentious sort of, I can, I'm just living for myself kind of a person, right? But it's harder to see uh, the religious person doing their duty as needing Christ, the, the real pious, good person, right? There are those uh, in, the, in churches who pride themselves on what they do for Christ, Right? It's all this, this whole identity they build up. Who, they accepted Jesus early. They went to Christian school. They went to church growing up. They never smoked. They never got snot slinging drunk. They, they were even mer- virgins when they got married. Imagine that these days, right? They look so religious, so good. You stand next to that person, you kind of feel, oh, I, I don't measure up. Others of us lived openly in sin before we came to Christ. But after coming to Him, our lives were changed and and we've walked with Jesus really well ever since. We also look very religious. We've left that past behind. And it would be easy for us if Paul were shouting at all those blatant sinners out there, but he's not. He's yelling at church people, right? He's talking to Judaizers. Well-intentioned religious people trying to let others know how to really please God through self-righteousness, through, through doing religious things, by being really good. But you might say to me, well, Jason, no one at 6-8 saying, hey, you've got to follow, a, you gotta follow the ceremonial law. You've got to become Jewish and get circumcised you know, to be a part of 6-8. You know, nobody's saying that here. But sometimes we do set up a new set of sort of ceremonial law to follow, don't we? A behavioral culture with rules to get in and stay in. Don't smoke. Don't get drunk. Don't look at porn. Stay chaste. Go to church. Study your Bible. Pray. Join a community group. You know, memorize scripture. Witness to people. You know, use this lingo. Sing these songs. All that kind of stuff. And like bad artists, right? We take the good mechanics and we make them so important that they replace Jesus. We create a culture of legalism. And we become self-righteous in our walks. But Paul says, uh, I th- uh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Right? You know, as if to say, you think you're a good guy? I am more religious than all of you. I did it all right. 
right? He says, circumcised on the eighth day, even his parents, you know, were, were devout and did everything. They followed all the rules for Paul so that he was a devout child, right? Even that, that outside of his control, you know, all of the people of Israel, he wasn't a convert. He wasn't the son of a convert. He is 110% Jewish, right? He's of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, one of the two tribes which stayed faithful while 10 other apostate tribes fell away. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He spoke the language. He didn't pollute himself with, you know, syncretism with Greek thought, thought life and all that kind of stuff. He was a Pharisee. There was only about 6,000 Pharisees around at any one time, and they knew the law inside and out. They were devoted, and they were set apart to guard all this law for the sake of, the, the, of, of Israel. He persecuted the church. Before he came to Christ, he, he, was, he had so much zeal for Judaism that it led him to persecute the church. He, gave, he sat there and he watched and he gave approval while Christians were put to death before his conversion. He did everything religious, right? If anyone thinks that they have a reason to find confidence in the flesh, they've got nothing on Paul. He is purebred. He is Jew of Jews, right? Even those things outside of his control were done for him in the right way. But in Jesus, what is all that worth? What is all that worth? Well, you thought he was intense when he spoke about dogs and all that other stuff, listen to what he says next. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Jesus is everything to Paul, right? What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Now, understand that that word garbage actually, I think, means human excrement right? So now I'm excited, right? Now I'm excited because Paul not only takes all the important details and mechanics of the faith and puts them into a coherent life of devotion, but he has shock value. He's a true artist, right? He is good, man. You want to listen to him, right? When he speaks like that, all his self-righteousness is good only to be flushed. That's it. Now I'm listening, Paul, right? And all those little adolescent boys perked up and snickered when this was read out loud to all of them. They want to know where he's going next. You know, but why does he have to be so shocking? You can almost hear the elders of the Philippian church saying, I'm not sure we can read this. It's a little too racy, right? A little too vulgar, right? But that's, that's what he said. And then he reveals the elemental issue that he thinks is so important to life in Christ. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, although the law is good, right? But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So righteousness, the elemental issue, what is it? How do we get it, right? And it's defined simply, I I would define it as simply a right relationship with God. How do you get right with God, right? And we know 
that there is nothing we can do to gain righteousness before God. I can't work myself into God's favor even if I tried. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved and through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I mean, that has been pounded into our little Christian brains, but how well do we really actually know it here and live it here? How do we do that? Because latching onto the word saved, we often relegate the gospel to only being important at the point of conversion. But grace has daily relevance. Daily, daily relevance. It's not only what legally justifies us before God the Father because Christ takes our sin upon himself and justifies us as, as if we were in a courtroom, but it, it sanctifies us, it changes us, it transforms us into the likeness of Christ over time. It's also, and that is also accepted by, by faith every day, that grace that covers us daily. You know, we sometimes like to think that we have it all together. Right, that that we even sometimes believe we get a little haughty. We think we we're 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 better than those blatantly licentious people out there. We like snub our nose and make little comments. But we need Jesus just as much today and every day as we always have. Nothing we can do can ever make us right with Christ. Jesus does that. Righteousness is credited to us. It's imputed to us. It's laid upon us. Right. It's Christ's righteousness, not mine. But we often think about salvation as Jesus forgave me of my sin, period. But there's more to it. He didn't just zero out my account. I think this is the best way to describe it. You know, it's like we, we were in negative numbers in our account. He didn't just come along and say, I pay the price for you. You know, the bank's not going to like, you know, send a collection agent after you anymore. The, you are at zero. He didn't, he didn't just zero out my account. Like I owed $500, now I'm at zero. And now I have to work to keep my account in the right order for the, for, the, for the future as if I have to keep being good all the time to stay in his good graces. That's not what he did. That's not at all what he did. But that's often how we look at the gospel. Rather, he came along, he not only zeroed out my account, but he filled it with all the riches of of his kingdom to be drawn upon daily without end. Praise God for that. I could get an amen for that, right? Amen, right? Righteousness and grace extend past just initial sort of forgiveness of sin and onto our being heirs of all that God has, all his riches. John Wesley, I love this story. John Wesley, and I've told it here before, so be patient if you've heard it. But John Wesley, uh, he's an author of many of our old hymns. Like you pick up an old hymn book, you know, a lot of them are written by him. But he was a pastor and a missionary um, who came from England to America way back when, where he set up this mission or ministry to save, you know, sort of bring the gospel to Native Americans in Georgia. But for certain reasons girl was involved he had to go back to england um and he considered himself at the time to be a good christian he did all the right things he was a pastor he was educated in the scriptures blah 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 and all this kind of stuff but something you know strange happened to him you know on that ship returning to england as as they traveled a storm brewed and you know and the ship was tossed all around excuse me and uh john was terrified he was terrified for his life but he noticed this little band of Moravian Christians on the, on the ship in the corner, just, you know, praying, 
And they were in prayer on the ship. They were totally fine. They were at peace. So how did they find peace in the face of imminent death? They, that, that struck him quite, quite deeply. So he goes back to England and he wrote this. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who, what is he, is he that shall deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I love that saying. I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near. But let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say to die is gain. I show my faith by my works, staking my all upon it. Oh, who will deliver me from this fear of death? So he was beginning to understand imputed righteousness. He was beginning to understand the, the gospel was becoming clear to him, finally. And he realized that his religion what what he was promoting sir you know just was based on works it was intellect it was it you know it was what he could do to reach god right he actually started the whole methodist movement which they called them methodists because they had very strict methods for practicing the christian faith that's why they got that name but this was a personal religion serving to build him up but it's of no use in time of need it was worthless, it was legalistic, it had no power. And upon reaching England, he met this Moravian named Peter Bowler, and uh, who, he started instructing him on salvation by faith alone, right? And so John began to read Luther's commentary on Galatians, and then he was invited to a Moravian gathering one night, and he goes and he wrote this of that experience. He said, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, I mean, he marks the time, right? About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's a great testimony. This was John's conversion, right? A man who had already given his whole life to the work of God as missionary and pastor, right? He had actually now, just now, found Christ in, his full, in, in the fullness of the word or the sense. Francis Schaeffer referred to living under Christ's righteousness as active passivity. Passivity because we receive the gospel f- freely, just passively. God just lays it upon us. But we are active in our pursuit of Jesus, right? Using the mechanics in a good way to pursue Jesus. Faith in nothing but Christ alone, sort of resting in the assurance of God's grace, not only to save us, but also to transform us. And as Paul said elsewhere, this brings freedom. It's, it's for freedom that you have been set free. You remember he said that. And then he asked, why, 
put yourself under bondage again. Why go back and just put on a yoke of bondage? Why would you do that? And that's exactly what the Judaizers were suggesting. And that's exactly what's happening in the church, in churches across the world right now, in many ways with, with a different gospel being preached. The simple gospel of Christ is good enough for us and good enough for everybody else. Francis Schaeffer, during a difficult time in his life, discovered what he called as the present value of the blood of Christ. I would say, even say present daily value of the blood of Christ, right? How, how the blood of Christ, the grace uh, that we find in Jesus, just enables me to walk deeply and better in life all the time. Rosemary Miller, in her book, From Fear to Freedom, great little thin book, if you ever want to read it, Rosemary Miller was a great lady. She just died she, a couple of years back. She lived uh, over here in uh, Maniunk. What? Jenkintown, sorry, Jenkintown. Uh, but anyway, so fear to freedom. She said, we need to be constantly sur- surprised by grace. There are those that marvel at the liberation which comes when you no longer think of the gospel as a mel- message relevant only to non-Christians. The gospel is relevant to me every single... You know, when Kim and I did our duet, I knew the lyrics, right? Um, but I couldn't feel the music. I couldn't put those two together. Have you ever felt like you know the gospel lyrics, but you just can't feel it? You can't, you can't you know, put it to music in your life. It doesn't seem beautiful. You mouth the words, but you can't put it together into a beautiful work of art, which is a beautiful song in your life. Well, Christ paints a beautiful picture with everyone who comes to him. Just like Van Gogh, he elevates us to, this, to the, the place of royal status. We look different in Jesus. He puts us in right relationship with the Father through his work on the cross. And faith starts with the point of recognition of, of you know, an acceptance of total human weakness, total depravity, and our need for repentance, our need for His grace, our need for His salvation. But day in and day out, saved once for all, never changes, but we are being changed and transformed into His likeness over time. But sadly, many of us live what Rosemary Miller would have called presumptive confidence in our works before God. Presumptive confidence. A.W. Tozer called it the self-life, right? The self-life. So the self-life or presumptive confidence, whatever you want to call it, it relies on moral abilities, religious accomplishments, and visible securities, things that I really trust in. It needs positive circumstances to survive. And this is where Paul comes into play in the past chapter where he talks, or past two chapters, where he talks about being able to suffer for Christ, right? It, see, the, the, a false gospel cannot embrace the suffering that is promised in following Jesus. Once you start to suffer, it just falls apart. John Wesley's presumptive confidence, his self-life, failed him on that ship. It fell apart. And that's exactly what happens when you're not really walking with Jesus in a way that, that is true. And that's why Paul gets so intense here. True faith in Christ can weather any storm. An election in a couple days away, which some of you are very worried about. Or maybe all of you are very worried about it. I don't know. But it can weather any storm, any criticism, any false teaching, any, you know, depressive incident or or danger. And it will leave you looking in the face of Jesus in all peace still. 
even though everything else is chaos around you. Augustine said, too late I I loved you. O beauty ever ancient and ever new, too late I loved you, and behold you were within me, and I outside of myself, there I searched for you. I'm trying to do all this work out here. Just grasp hold of Jesus in your heart, right? We will fight a battle against our fleshly nature until Jesus comes back. That's, the, what, that's what we live in. So cheer up. You are worse than you think. <laughs> and you can laugh about it, right? You can laugh about it because of the gospel. We are no better than that licentious sort of uncircumcised person out there in our self-righteous law-abiding flesh. We're no better than anybody else. That's the message of the gospel. Amen. Anybody who thinks that we're arrogant hasn't really understood what this is all about. We have nothing to prove to God or anybody else. His righteousness has been credited to us. Through Him, we are rightly related to God once more. So I don't have to fight for approval any longer. Never did. So, walk by the Spirit with Jesus as your righteousness. Right? Pursue Christ well. Use all the tools of the faith maturely, not trusting in them for righteousness, but paint a beautiful portrait of life given over to Jesus in all ways. Don't be taken away by a false progressive gospel that is very pervasive right now. Hold firmly to the message of Christ. Hold firmly to the scriptures. Don't just memorize the words, but allow the music of the grace of God to flow through you. Sing them. Learn them in song. And then I think you will be in step with the Spirit. And you will automatically be a great witness for God's glory and God's mission in this world. You know, as Paul said, forget what's behind, strain towards what's ahead, press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. Allow Jesus to use all those mechanics of the faith to paint a masterpiece of your life. Amen? Amen. Now, Dave Christie's been asking for this for a while, and I, and I thought today was the end of this sermon is a good day to do this. And I would ask you to, to stand up. We're going to do something that we don't normally do at 6-8. We're going to do a collective reading of the Apostles' Creed. Because I think this signifies the things that we believe and we own together. It, this is a unifying creed that we recite together and, and we understand that this is who we are in Christ and this is what's been done for us, right? So I'm going to start to read in a second and then uh, after which you guys can have a seat and we're going to do communion. Um, let me just say communion is going to be different. You'll have to come up here to either side, grab one of these little thingies. Uh, because of COVID, we're doing this. On the bottom, you peel that back and there's a little uh, wafer in there. And then you take the top off. So you take that and then you take the top off and you can take the wine. All right. So I just want to make the, that you aware of that. All right. We're going to read this together and this is new for us. So uh, just if, if you're not in step right away, just it'll just let it let it happen. All right. Ready? One, two, three. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. By the way, have a seat. By the way, when we say Catholic Church there, I know some people have a little bit of a, a bird, you know, because you're not Catholics, but that just means the whole church, everybody, you know. So, so as we come to the, the table, I would uh, I want to pray us into that, um, and I want to remind us of of this is a a a time of remembrance. It's a time of remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Everything that I just talked about in that sermon. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a serious time. It's a time that we've missed doing for quite a while now because of COVID. But it's a time that we, um, we really need to share together. So I hope people at home can find a way to do that while you're at home and do this along with us. But let me pray us into this. Father, we come to your table today and we come with all due respect and honor and we want to glorify you by doing this rightly. So I pray that if we are uh, in need of repentance, if we are in need of confession, that if there's anything that's standing in the way of us uh, taking this in the right way, that you would make that clear to us as individuals and Give us the opportunity to do that before we come. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that on the night that you were betrayed, you took the the bread and you gave thanks for it. And we could just can imagine being in that room, how you broke it and you said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we know that in the same way, after supper, you took the cup and you said that this is the cup this this cup is the new covenant new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me we thank you for that we thank you that you established this we thank you that this is a symbol of our unity in you and we want to come to this table and really do this well amen amen thank you so from now till the end of the service you can come on up and take that whenever you want Rick.